G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. I, I was just too scared. I'd already bought, you know, some rental properties, too scared to flip the property. I was just fear just overtook me. So what we did is we found people that wanted to flip the property. And so we find the deal and then we'd sell the one. So they had to buy it with us and sell it with us. So we'd make commissions on both sides. We doubled our commissions. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, Show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ryan Wright. Ryan is the CEO of DoHardMoney.com. Ryan has been investing for over 19 years and throughout his career, he saw the difficulties of getting funding quickly and reliably and that is where the idea to DoHardMoney.com came from. DoHardMoney.com is a private hard money company that offers short-term funding for real estate investors through a peer-to-peer platform. Ryan has also published three books, which are The Most Powerful Secrets in Getting Short Sales Approved, Seven Short Sales Myths and How to Overcome Them, and How to Get All the Money You Could Ever Want. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Ryan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. That that uh, Aussie accent makes my bio sound even better than it is. <laughs> mate, you've got to lean into it, right? <laughs> mate, where are you dialing in from today? 
So I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Beautiful, beautiful. How's the weather out there right now? Well, thankfully, we're having the wettest spring we've ever had since like 1867 or something, second wettest. But today's a sunshiny day, which I'm really grateful for. Nice. Has the weather started to warm up a little bit out there? Yeah, just, I, I mean, up in the mountains, it snowed on Monday a little wow. bit. So, I mean, it's just kind of that uh, rocky, rocky mountain. You never know what you're yeah. going to get. It's going to be warm one day, snow the next day. It's just one of the reasons I love living here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, mate, I always ask my guests who come on the show to let's rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Ah, uh, um, okay. So I got a lot of, <laughs> that's, that's a loaded question because I had a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, if you ask my mom, she would say I would uh, save every penny every, anyone ever gave me. If we went to, you know, the movies or a rodeo or something, my grandpa gave everybody a dollar. I'd put my in my pocket and eat my sister's candy that she bought with it. <laughs> uh, you know, so, but I think the earliest things that I could probably remember and I think this is one of the things that kicked off my entrepreneurial journey so early. Um, you know, I was I was selling uh, Coca-Colas to construction workers in my neighborhood and, uh, you know, claim to fame as my mom said, I sold one for 20 bucks to a, to a worker because he was on, he was roofing and up top and it was a hundred degree day. So, you know, I got into that and then, uh, you know, honestly, thankfully, uh, my dad really uh, got me into entrepreneurship and I think the real start of that was, um, he was a chiropractor. Um, he bought some rental properties along the way. Um, my grandpa actually bought rental properties and did some flips in Southern California before it was even popular. Um, <laughs> and so, but you know, I got a carpet. My, my dad, uh, his office needed the carpets cleaned and he was paying a cleaner to come clean the carpets every month. And he made a deal with me. He said, Hey, I'll loan you the money buy the carpet cleaning machine. I'll be your client. You can pay off the loan with doing that and go, go around the neighborhood knocking on doors. And so I did that when I was like 14 years old, 14, 15. And that turned into a full blown. I had a, a full size van and full carpet. Wow. And I had some, some big, I had a, a Brighton ski resort was a customer of mine, Franklin Covey. If you know the Franklin, yep. Franklin uh, planners before it was Franklin Covey was a client of mine. And uh, so anyway, that turned into a big thing that I actually sold that company while I was in high school. Holy crap. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, like big, we're talking big numbers or? No, 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 no. I, you know, I sold it for maybe 10,000 bucks. But still. Uh, but, but I started, I started another company after that that was mats and matting, floor mats and that type of stuff. And I sold that one and that one paid out pretty well. I got residual payout on that for five years. And so, wow. you know, after I was married, paid my car payment and, you know, all that when we were newlyweds and going to school and that type of stuff, that was like manna from heaven. So. Wow, man. Well, that's, that's incredible. That's such a, not many people come on this show and say that they've successfully sold a business in high school. So I think, yeah. you, might, I think you might actually be the first person. <laughs> yeah. Um, I told you I'd be your best one yet. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me what, you know, let's, let's connect the dots here. So yeah. um, carpet cleaning in high school, where's the journey led to, to for you to today uh, throughout university and then obviously now into becoming a do hardmoney.com. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here's what I knew. So my grandpa was an HVAC contractor. He'd buy a house, fix it up, maybe move into it, sell it later, make some money. He ended up buying, so that was in Southern California, buying some properties in, uh, in St. George, Southern Utah. Um, my dad got into, you know, he'd buy three plex, four plex, he'd buy one and we'd fix it up and rent it and he'd keep it and buy another one. So I kind of grew up not only doing the carpet cleaning, that type of stuff, but in the summers I was painting houses and doing manual labor and cleaning, you know, getting ready. And I knew there was money in real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I was really fortunate for that, you know, so I, I kind of grew up with these, with these principles of, you know, entrepreneurship and understanding leverage and understanding how real estate works and, and being a, you know, an owner versus a, a renter and understanding how interest works. Um, you know, so from there, you know, I, I got into uh, real estate. I decided I want to be a real estate agent. Um, I, I didn't really want to be an agent, but I knew that would help get me closer. So um, I, I ended up uh, going to school. Uh, while I was going to school, I got my real estate uh, license and um, I convinced my girlfriend at the time to do the same thing. Um, it was a great way to date while we were in class and, you know, do that stuff. And then uh, we started uh, just being a traditional agent. Uh, I was kind of too scared to do it myself. Um, but I did buy my first duplex before I was even an agent. So at 21, I bought my first duplex, uh, turned it into a fourplex. Um, I kind of came from the lending background. So I was uh, working on helping people get loans. I would call renters and ask them if they wanted to buy a house for the same amount they paid in rent or less. And then my wife would then take them and show them, uh, show them properties and they'd end up buying a house from her. And so we were just helping people uh, buy their first house. That's kind of where, where it all started. In the same time, we were working on growing our own investment portfolio because I knew buy, buy rental properties, buy rental properties. So I was buying duplex and then, you know, save up some money, buy a fourplex, you know, that type of stuff. So um, that's, that's kind of where the journey, it's continued to lead from there, so. That's awesome. So sounds like your grandfather and your dad had a massive influence on your upbringing and to get you into where the trajectory that you are today. Like, I don't, I don't think we'd, we'd be sitting here if they didn't have that, such a massive influence on your career. Yeah, I don't think so. Not not for real estate. Maybe I'd be sitting on some other podcast for <laughs> technology or I don't know what, but definitely for real estate because I just saw the, uh, I saw all the blessings that come from owning real estate and, um, in so many aspects of life. Yeah. Well, so let's go, let's dive into, you know, what you've noticed and how you've reacted to the market because in your bio, in the introduction, um, you've been, you've been at this for nearly 20 years. And, and in that time, you've probably seen a lot of stuff happen, come and go, uh, recessions and cycles. And then you, you were in your bio, you're talking a little bit about the reliability of hard money. And um, for, for all those folks who maybe listen to this show, but don't necessarily understand what hard money is, do you want to just maybe fill the dots? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it kind of continues with my story when we were, you know, we we're buying rental properties, helping people as an agent. Um, and then we said, we got to get into this investing game. And so to do that, we said, we're going to start um, flipping some properties and, you know, went to a seminar and got some information read up on it, but I was too scared to do it myself. I, I was just too scared. I'd already bought, you know, some rental properties, too scared to flip the property. I was just, fear just overtook me. So what we did is we found people that wanted to flip the property. And so we find the deal and then we'd sell the one. So they had to buy it with us and sell it with us. So we'd make commissions on both sides. We doubled our commissions. And we also didn't have to work nights and weekends and be an adult counselor to, you know, <laughs> husband and wife that are fighting over which house to buy or what to do. And so we started doing some of that and helping those guys do it. And eventually we got to the point where we started doing our, doing our own deals. And so we started fixing, flipping our own, overcame that fear, which took some time and, uh, you know, transitioned out of plexes into uh, rental properties, just single family houses is kind of the direction we've gone. And then from there, we got into lending. And, and one of the things that I, I realized lending and then software, which is a big part of our business right now, um, because software has just changed the game so substantially. Um, but, you know, to, to really answer, answer the question on that is, um, I, 
I realized in buying these properties how difficult it was because we'd go find a good deal and then we'd call somebody up and we'd say, hey, we found this deal. And they'd say, oh, you know, I watched the news last night and there was a shooting, you know, there and I'm not going to fund your deal. But we spent three months finding a great deal. And then we'd say, well, where will you do it? Okay, we'll do it on the East Bench. And then we'd find a property on the East Bench and give up that deal we, we had because we couldn't get it funded. And then on the East Bench, we'd find a property. We'd call up the guy and he'd be like, oh, I'm out of money. I used it for something else. And then it's like, it took us months to find this. Now, now, again, this was a long time ago. We're talking 15 plus years ago. So the world's changed quite a bit. Right. But one of the things that I noticed was it's really, it takes a lot of work to find a good deal. And you want to make sure before you go find that good deal, you've got the backing, the money, you've got, um, you'll know what they'll do and what they won't do. Um, we got really frustrated because every time we call somebody, it would be like, well, give us the deal and we'll take a look at it and we'll see. And I'd say, I want to know what you'll do and what you won't do. Just like, give me your freaking parameters and I'll play within them. But don't play this game of like, bring it to me and right. some magic wand will decide. Like, what will you do and what you won't do? So that kind of got us into um, one of my clients actually that in the real estate side, we helped him liquidate a bunch of properties. And one day he came into town and said, hey, I've got a few million bucks. I really trust you guys. We've done a bunch. What should I do with it? And I said, hard money, man. This is the way to go. And so we started doing some deals and became really popular and grew from Utah to Texas to Georgia to Virginia. So now we're in like 30 states um, in the major metro areas in those states. And, and uh, we provide tools, resources, capital, and uh, in helping people become successful real estate investors. And, and all, all in the residential space or the resi space, right? Anything under four units. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, we're doing a few, you know, we've got a few opportunities that we look at occasionally bigger than that, but 99% of the time, uh, we're just dealing with uh, single family for the most part. And for all those listeners out there, the hard money aspect is really like you're a non-conventional bank. You you are actually investors who, uh, it's, a, it's a pool of investors who pull their money together and lend to real estate investment opportunities that people find, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I like to tell people is, you know, we don't really even care about your income. We don't really care about your credit. We don't care. All we care about is the equity in the property. So mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, when, when you go get a loan, they're more concerned about the soft assets, your job history, your income, your credit scores, all those types of things. We're concerned about the hard asset. So we want to make sure there's value in the property and we're going to scrutinize the property. And we may say, hey, we don't think there's enough value in this for us to take on that risk, given you have no, you know, don't have a lot of money or you don't have history or you don't have experience or, you know, all these types of things. So we're not, there's, there's a, a realm of possibilities here for hard money lenders or a spectrum, I should probably say. Um, there's some that really call themselves hard money lenders, but they want lots of money down and really good credit and lots of experience. And, you know, those types of things, those are on, you know, almost as close to a bank as you can get. And then there are guys like us that say, we don't really care if you have a job or have ever had a job as long as that values, but we're going to be more concerned about the value on the property where they're going to be more concerned about money in the bank and all those different types of things. So there's definitely a spectrum. So that brings up the next question, which would be a segue into how do you develop those systems and trust as you're scaling a business across state lines? You, you just mentioned you're in 30 different states. I could imagine it's easy when you can touch and feel the asset in your backyard, but as you start to scale a business, which is <laughs> part of what this, this show is all about is understanding how to scale a business. I'm sure there would have been parameters in there that would shift you along that spectrum back towards the bank to, to make sure you're protecting your downside, correct? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and some of your listeners, uh, you know, that may be overseas and saying, oh, I'm too scared to invest in the US or something like that. I, I remember it. So I was an agent, I was an investor, I was a fix and flipper, I had my own rental properties all in my lovely state of Utah. And um, we decided, hey, we got to expand past here um, for various reasons. And I was scared to death. My wife was even more upset. Um, and so we started doing it. What we found was really interesting. We actually started to have more success in other states than we did in our own state. Hmm. And one of the reasons was is because we were easily got too emotional about the deal and not logical about the deal. So for us to expand into multiple states, we have to have reliable people, boots on the ground. Right. So we have evaluators that are going to the property that are agents or um, a agents or appraisers. We get two independent sets of values. Um, we want those two values to be within 10% of each other. If not, we order a third evaluation um, and we're going to use the lowest of those three. So that's really the thing that we do to protect ourselves is make sure we have good people and make sure we get multiple values and make sure we're conservative on those values. Um, and that works for us 95% of the time. Occasionally there's going to be a, a, a problem in there. Um, and I think that's another big lesson learned is investing. It does take risk and you are going to lose some money occasionally. It's right. just part of, it's part of the game. So just don't, don't think, oh, I'm never going to lose any money. Um, that's like saying you're never going to speed. It's just going to happen <laughs> occasionally, even if you don't really speed. It's just going to happen occasionally. But what you're trying to do is look at it as the overall portfolio of right. you know, win-loss and that type of stuff, which we learned a lot of that through 2008. And when the downturn happened in 2008, our investors still made money. They lost money on deals, made money on deals, but unlike the stock market or anything else where they lost half of their uh, net worth, they maintained their net worth with the stuff they had with us, and they actually made a few percent uh, on their money during that time. And that really catapulted us um, from that time because all the investors are like, we want to bring more to you because this is recession proof. When we have problems, this is the place to be. Um, and, you know, this year we made the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing company. We're like 1,800 or 1,850 or something like that. Um, we've just really grown from there. Um, the other big thing for us is staying under the FHA limits. So we don't do like jumbo and big and million dollar properties and that type of stuff where most of the stuff that we're doing is uh, a blue collar, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, you know, medium price range where family can move in there. That's FHA price ranges. And though that's kind of been the keys to our success to, to uh, going to multiple states and protecting ourselves against downsides, make sure the value solid, make sure you're not over FHA loan limits and um, make sure you get multiple opinions of value. Um, we also look at some risk factors from crime to, you know, those types of things. We don't want to be in high crime neighborhoods. We don't want to be in, you know, the war zones, you know, we don't want to be low. Uh, we don't want to be under 75 $5,000 properties, you know, those types of things are some parameters we put ourselves in place. Uh, as we've seen time and time again, those always lead to problems. Um, and that's just uh, trial and error. I think it's the big things there. It's interesting. You mentioned under $75,000. My first ever property I purchased in upstate New York in Syracuse was for $38,000 all cash. Cause I could, I came fresh off the boat. There was no one lending to me. And uh, I was like, you can buy what for $38,000 on paper. That was, it went, went great. Yeah. So we had a drive by shooting and we eventually had to sell it. We, I didn't lose any money, made a little bit of money on the rental for over a period of like 18 months, but it was more headache than what it was worth. Well, and, and that's really the key point here is you can make money on $30,000 properties. The question is, is do you want to deal with the, the headaches it takes to make the money? Right. Um, one of my other investors, 
um, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, you could call him a slumlord, you know, <laughs> buys low end properties, never fixes them up, puts, you know, government approved housing tenants in there and makes money, but it's management intense. He's always yes. dealing with move outs and peoples and shootings and, you know, all kinds of crap like that. But the margin on it is huge if you can stomach and want to deal with it. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got nicer properties that, you know, a quality rentals where you never hear from your tenant. My average tenant stays five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of tenant I want, but it just, but my margins aren't as good. Are you, um, lending to people? So I should, the question should be, what's your range of lending limit? And are you lending to rental people or, or investors who are renters, uh, looking to build a rental portfolio or you or are you, inve- uh, lending to fix and flippers or a bit yeah. of both? We do both. So primarily, most of our business is fix and flippers, buy, fix up, and resale. We give them the money to buy it. We give them the money to fix it up, and then they resell the property. All, all like first-time homeowners, right? Like so that under $300,000 sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I should, to clarify, um, most of our people are new investors, new flippers, but we can't, we aren't lending to homeowners. They've got to be an investor, but they're reselling to like a first-time homeowner type of a situation or, or a move-up buyer. Um, so that's most of our business. But we do have people that are going to borrow money from us, the rehab and the purchase that are going to then put a tenant in there, refinance um, and try and get in with a little to no money down on a refinance, depending upon what their financial institution will do on a cash out. And we also have some, uh, we've got our, most of the money we have is private, our own capital. We also have some relationships with billion dollar hedge funds that we can just put you right into a rental, like a five year or a 10 year. It, there, there's going to be more qualifications around credit scores and those things, but it's not going to be like a bank. Um, and the rates are going to be higher as well, but it's getting you into a deal you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Awesome. I, uh, I I also had flipped a few houses in my time. And uh, I remember the, the first of a flip I did was a row house in Philadelphia. Great, you know, great bones. Uh, it was next to a three-story uh, house. And so we, I'm a structural engineer. I did all the drawings myself. We put a third story on there with a rooftop. Bought it at 110, thinking we'll put 150 to $170,000 into it. Long, kind of long story short, the GC was the issue. He stole money. He, he stole stuff you know from the from the side we had had to take it over didn't get inspections done correctly ended up dragging out for a long period of time and the arv on that thing was going to be around 380 uh to 400 i think we sold it right at 382 we had no issues getting the the sales price but i ended up losing a little bit of money personally but because my i made sure my investors were made whole and got their interest that i promised them but it was just a really interesting it's, it's, a, it's hard, you know, and, and the reason I got into large multifamily, you know, commercial assets was because I could cash flow from day one, not necessarily deploy my capital for 18 months, have nothing, you know, coming in and, you know, thinking it was going to take me six to seven months, with the, which it should have, it shouldn't have taken any longer than that, but because you've got to take over the property and you've got to, you know, grind it to the, to the finish line, dealing with the local city inspectors, like I had my fair share of, uh, of war wounds, but, um, what is your perspective on flipping today? Like this was going back 2012, 13, when I did my flip before transitioning into commercial. What are you seeing? You know, HGTV is all around and, you know, what's the, what's the couple in Texas? Um, Chuck yeah, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> Joanna, Joanna. <laughs> Joanna. Everyone he, thinks they can do it. And I, I was yeah. overhearing the other day on the buses, like someone was like, oh, he's got a flip. Like some old lady was like, oh, he's got a flip. Like as if that's going to just make him money because he has a quote-unquote flip, you know, like yeah. all these weird... <laughs> 
things that people think they can do? And what's your thoughts on where we are in the flipping market right now? Well, I mean, you bring up a ton of points I want to I want to address. But the first one is I, I couldn't agree with you more that all the TV shows have glamorized flipping properties to the nth degree. You know, I can, uh, you know, turn on the TV, get a bite to eat. And by the time I'm having some uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream for dessert, they've already made a hundred grand. And uh, it was so easy. <laughs> But I'll tell you the part they forget about that they never show you is how the heck they found the deal in the first place. So that's the first thing. And that should be, the whole show should be on that. There's that and there's also the, uh, I love, there's never take into consideration the time. You know, like it's like, oh, yeah, we put in 100 grand and, you know, it's like, how long, what's the time? Has it been six months? Has it been a year? Like, what are, what are we talking about here, you know? Over, overnight. It was 20, <laughs> yeah. it was, it took 15 minutes, the house. So it's glamorized. It's made it simple. Yep. It's made it easy. Those types of things. The concerns you talked about with general contractors, that just plain doesn't go away. One of the ways that we mitigate our risk is we require a general contractor and we have to vet that contractor and we have project managers that work with a general contractor. And I can tell you about 50% of the deals that may pass values, we can't get to pass general contractors or project managers because if you hire the wrong contractor, the cheapest contractor isn't the best one. Um, and if they doesn't return our calls and he doesn't have a license and that type of stuff, we're concerned. We don't want to give this guy money and have him run away with it. But those same concerns of him stealing money or running away or quality of work and all those things, those are huge. Mm. Um, and so a lot of times a first time flipper or someone that's getting, you know, in the flipping game, you know, may find a really expensive bid to come to find out the guy doesn't show up to work and he runs away with some money and you've got yourself in a problem. So we do things to mitigate our risk on that quite substantially. Um, but that makes it harder to get a deal done. But that that's because you want it to be harder to get a deal done because you don't want to end up losing money and have to pay money out of pocket and those things. So we're not going to take on those deals. If you've got 20% lots of money and good credit and you want to get that deal done through someone else, go for it. Um, but if you want to get started and learn the game, you've got to work with somebody that's going to say, we're not going to do this right. um, because it's in both of our best interests not to do this. And here's the reasons why. And that can be a hard pill to swallow. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, we'll occasionally have somebody go and say something bad about us online because we said, we're not going to do this deal because of these reasons. It's like, well, you know, and it's like, well, it's for your best interest, not just ours. I mean, we want to fund this deal more than anybody. Um, that's how we make our money. Uh, but in the end, if we can't do it, we're, we're not going to get you into a bad deal. We don't want to get ourselves into a bad deal. Okay. Yeah, I know you bring up some <clears throat> really good points in and around like uh, the education piece of how essentially constru you know, construction works because that's really where it comes down. It's people management on the ground. And even though it, I, I'd had a lot of experience building in New York, London, Australia, when it's your own money and it was only a three-story flip, it's completely different, you know, and it's uh, it's definitely interesting when – and what, what I had was always taught, I remember negotiating the contract with this guy and, you know, he wasn't the cheapest. And I, I was like, I'm going to put in some liquidated damages here. He's like, oh, no, I don't do liquidated. Residential doesn't do liquidated damages. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, like, um, you know, that's what I've been taught in the commercial space. And anyway, we agreed to not put him in. And, you know, I, sh I should have put him in because if I, you know, if I had a rattlestick there, it would have definitely been, uh, would have got done on time. And lessons learned. Look, you know, I didn't, I didn't lose a ton of money. But um, at the end of the day, it was something that I really, you know, it was my, my eyes wide open. And so, well, um, I'm glad you bring it up because I actually do put, I don't call it liquidated damages. Um, I, you know, I do a bonus and a penalty. So I yeah. tell the contractor, say, Hey, here's the deal. My money on this is 75 bucks a day. Right. So every day you finish early, I'll give you $150 for each day you finish early, but I'm going to charge you $75 per day that you're late. Yep. 
Yeah, you know, it's, and it's the same thing. Liquid. I'm yeah. in the money. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it's just the uh, the uh, the nerdy way of saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have it's a penalty and it's a, it's a bonus. That's exactly uh, so right. It's a daily rate for anyone who's listening out there. Look at um, AIA, which is the uh, American Institute of Architects. They have a great, great contract language in and around that. And yeah, uh, but and, and use it. Yeah, and use do that. It. Use it. Use it. And, 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 and if the contractor says no, find a new contract. Exactly. I think that's the biggest lesson. If he can't do a schedule, or he or she can't do a schedule and/or sign up for LDs or more penalty clauses, then yeah, find someone else. So yeah. you, might, you might pay a little bit more, but that means then the deal may not pencil. Well, go find a new deal. So um, now, man, I want to get into the the peer to peer lending. You know, you, you this whole thing around crowdfunding and how sexy it is. And I've had a lot of people on this show talk about crowdfunding. I've had, I've had CrowdStreet, I've had um, Patch of Land, I've had all the big names come on on board. And it's been in my experience and interviewing people over the last four or five years. It's been a bit of a flash in the pan. A lot of a lot of people come into market with these sexy ideas with the Jobs Act changing in 2012. Has how have you di- differed? Because obviously you've hit the market prior to any of this changing. So how did one? Firstly, how did you you know get your investors to come through the portal if you even had a portal? And how did you get you know, stick with the SEC regulations? And then post 2012, when the Jobs Act changed, what have you seen in terms of all this crowdfunding and? The hoobala around like, oh, just invest money online. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think that the peer-to-peer is simply a, just a buzzword at the moment. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that's kind of my thing. So here, here's basically where we're at. We're structured completely different. So um, we have private individuals that have high net worths, um, accredited investors that come to us um, and say, hey, I've got some money. And we say, great. Um, we have an underwriting criteria. These are the deals that we do. These are the deals we don't do. Um, we post them on our platform and you can log in and tell us which ones. We're not pooling money. Mm-hmm. Um, each individual loan is done by an individual investor. Right. Um, so that saves us from a whole bunch of regulations and red tape. And they're able to say yes or no. What we do is we say, these are the rates. These are the points. This is what we charge uh, depending upon which tier level you're in. And individual investors come in and say, yeah, I'll take that deal. Um, there's some downsides and there's some upsides. The downside is, is that diversifying your risk isn't diversified against every deal that's being done out there. So you're really heavy into that one deal. That's positive and it's negative. The positive way of that is you own it all. You can take it, you can rent it, you can do whatever, you make the shots um, and you have some control over that. The good news is we manage it all. So we'll make sure the rehab gets done. If not, we'll step in and get it done. We'll get the property resold. We'll do those things. So you just have to make some decisions if we have a property that doesn't take back. The way you diversify your risk in that type of situation is you have multiple borrowers, multiple states, multiple areas, and you have to diversify yourself within the own portfolio. So we tell people you got to at least be in three deals. Most of our investors are in four, five, six, ten, you know, deals. So they've diversified themselves that way. So if they do end up with a, a you know, we'll, we'll lose Probably money on <laughs> five or seven deals, then it diversifies, it, you know, against all the other deals that they have. So now that's kind of the thing. I mean, we, we say peer-to-peer lending because it's a buzzword, but the reality is, um, from all intents and purposes, most of the people that we're working with, we, we actually own, we own that paper or we control that paper, I should say. The investor is the one that owns the paper, but we have the power of attorney. We take care of uh, making sure the payments come in and doing all that fun stuff. So um, and that's what I'd say. I think the peer-to-peer really is, is big buzzwords. The other thing is we're lending on deals that they 
most peer-to-peers don't want to lend on. So for us, there's a sweet spot for us. And so we can compete with everybody and try and get, you know, seven, eight percent on our money, or we can work with newer investors that take on a little bit more risk that we can get paid more handsomely for doing that. And so the way we mitigate that risk is having project managers and servicing professionals. And we have you go through and use our education, our course, our software. We have you do an upfront investment to make sure that you're serious and utilizing those things. And so we take you through a funnel so that we make sure you're the right person and we help you along the way. And we say no to a lot of deals um, because we want to make sure it's the right deal for you. And sometimes that's difficult for people to hear. Um, But in the end, if you do, we can do really well. Um, I've got our our advertising attorney, I meet with him in, a, in an hour and, you know, our, our average guy made $36,000 after all fees and costs and everything, net, 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 net. Um, you know, I don't know if you read, uh, but uh, not truly, uh, um, Zillow, they got in the flipping game last year and their average, uh, their average profit per deal that they flipped, they lost $104,000 per property. Um, you know, and they did like 100 deals or something. Their average loss was 104000 So, you know, even if you've got the money and those types of things, if you don't have the right system, the experience and that type of stuff, you're not going to go anywhere. So the guys that, you know, come on board, follow along, use our stuff, use our software, you know, do it the right way, what we call the right way, um, are going to be successful. And there's a million ways to skin a cat um, and to make money in real estate. I mean, you you do commercial, you do all different types of stuff. And I've been involved with some commercial deals and some mobile home deals. And, um, you know, I'm I'm dealing with a luxury luxury RV pad, the covered parking and stuff in Florida. You know, I dabble in that type of stuff really just from a personal standpoint, not from a do hard money business standpoint. Um, There's a lot of ways to skin a cat. Um, I just like helping people get that first deal under their belt. And like you said, but I want to make sure that first deal is successful and you make money and and those types of things. Um, We just have a lot of, I believe there's a bigger game to be played here than just lending money. You know, I want to be able to influence people's lives. I mean, I I was reading about you and, you know, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad and how it changed your life. Um, You know, I not only want to be the, the driver to help people do that, but I want to give you the infrastructure to make it happen, the money, the tools, the resources, and that type of stuff. And I just find more fulfillment doing that, helping people just getting started than helping people, um, you know, make more millions. Now, I still get the satisfaction on the other side because I've got guys with private capital and we're helping those guys make money. So I've got this whole ecosystem of people helping people, which I really enjoy. You've said all the buzzwords that I love to hear. Big game, <laughs> playing a bigger game and ecosystem. I think it's, you know, in my mind and what drives me is, is you got to have a bigger game. You've got to have a North Star. What, what is your North Star? And as you, you know, as I, uh, you know, have achieved financial freedom and become an entrepreneur and a leader and blah, 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 what is your next, you know, you've got to that next point that took, oh, five, six, seven years to get to financial freedom. Blah, great. Okay, what's now next? So it's now building company. It's now building systems. It's now building ecosystems to build long-term wealth. So um, really, really interesting. One thing I wanted to quickly go back on, any um, concerns or thoughts about like, because I know with Zillow as well, I think it's Redfin was like those no-look offers or something, like they get into the brokerage game and and now I didn't even know Zillow was involved in the flipping game. Does that give you any pause or concern moving forward uh, as a business? These big... Uh no, not really. I mean, our our whole thing is we think that we're smarter than all of them <laughs> or more agile than that. I mean, the reality is um, they're going to take the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. So we really teach our people to go after off-market properties. So if you're trying to compete with everybody else on the MLS, you're going to be competing with the Zillows and the and the Redfins and everybody else like that that are using computer logarithms to try and figure stuff out. Now, if you're doing, you know, we 
our, our computer system, we can find out people that have $100,000 or more of equity that are out of state, non-occupied, and they have some distress, like they have a, a lien or they're behind on payments or they have a bankruptcy, they're going through a divorce or out of state owner, or, you know, a landlord and that type of stuff. And then we do direct marketing to those. We teach our people to do direct marketing to those people. And then when they call, I'm usually one of just a few or maybe the only one they're talking to. By the time somebody hits the market in this type of economy, you're competing with every Tom, Dick, and Harry and your values, you know, your profit margins just shrink. I want to be helping people that aren't even listed yet that are saying, I don't even know what to do here. You've got a mess. I can help you with that mess and we can clean it up and make it work and move you out and work, work all kinds of wonders and help solve that guy's problem. I, I teach our people to be real estate problem solvers. And if you're solving problems, once they're on the MLS, the, the opportunity to solve the problem is probably gone by then. Um, and so I think that you're, when you're dealing with the Zillows and the Redfins and the, all those big guys, they're using a computer logarithm to try and figure out which MLS properties make offers on. Uh, there's, there's a time and a place to make money in the MLS, but it's becoming less and less as the market heats up. Yeah, no, I, and it, I think we also with the amount of access people have to it, right? Like every Tom, Dick, and Harry's has a agent friend who just gives them access and gives them leads and all that sort of stuff. Well, um, and we have we every anybody who's a member of ours has hundred percent access to like ninety eight percent of the MLS across the entire country by themselves. They don't even talk to their friend or anybody else. Um, we've got access to all of them across the country. Awesome. Um, one, one question I wanted to ask you is in and around how, building your business and building your systems around it. Because one thing I think you've done just from having this short conversation with you, you really recession proofed your own business because now you're not necessarily on the investing side, which may be recession, not particularly in flipping. Um, how have you gone about recession proofing your business through creating up business ecosystems that we talked about briefly? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, so we've got our education tools, resources and software side, and then we've got our lending side. So, um, you know, as one, as one does better, the other one maybe does a little bit worse. And so they kind of are, are different ends of the, of the scale there. So that kind of helps each other out. The other thing is we're doing short-term financing. We're not doing long-term financing. So if I get into a bad deal, I'm out of it six months later and the market's um, although occasionally they drop really quickly. Usually I reset my cost basis. So if markets are heading down, as long as I'm resetting that cost basis every six months, um, then, I'm, then I'm in good shape. And then same thing if they're heading up, I'm resetting that cost basis every six months. Uh, beyond that, just being really critical, make sure it's really a good deal. Um, that's what it comes down to it. I mean, I think a, a good deal, if you get into a, a good deal, even if things go not so great, you can get out of it and not lose your, your shirt on it. Um, but if you're, if you're on the margin and you're just so close, if one little thing's going to put you over the edge, it's probably a deal you don't want to do, especially in the hot market like this. If things change tomorrow, um, you could find yourself in trouble. We just don't want to touch those types of deals. And, and lastly, for, for changing in markets, being under the FHA limits is just like the key to our success. Um, we don't want to be above FHA. That's just all there is to it. Million dollar properties are so much harder to sell than right. FHA homes. And that's, you know, that's really the big thing that I think helps inflation proof us. In 1980, when interest rates hit 20%, FHA loans were still happening and homes were still selling. There was fewer homes selling because there was fewer buyers, but they were still selling. So if you're the cheapest and the nicest and you're in that FHA price range, you will always sell. There will always be a buyer for the cheapest and the nicest. So how can I always be the cheapest and the nicest um, property that's out there? And that's how we view our lending is how can we be the cheapest and the nicest and uh, making sure that it's short term so we can get in and out quickly. Love it. Mate, last question before we dive into the lightning round is, 
Where do you think we are in the, you know, ask all my, my guests this, where are we? Where are we in the, <laughs> are in the cycle? And what's, oh, what's, the, what's, what's, give me your crystal ball. Come on. What's, yeah, what for sure. say there? Well, okay. So here's, here's what I'll say. Yeah. No crystal ball. Who the heck knows? The question, there's two questions in my mind. Number one is what's the next crisis? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had the housing crisis because of the loans and that type of stuff is the next crisis. Some, you know, business crisis, the next, some political crisis is the next crisis. Some, uh, you know, um, tech boom. Yeah, tech boom or, you know, some we, you know, North Korea when us get in a, a fight or, you know, like, I don't know. And that's the real thing that causes all this stuff is like, what's the next crisis? I don't know what that's going to be. It could be a variety. And what happens to real estate is really going to depend on what the next crisis is, you know, right. so, so that's really the big thing. With that said, there's two other big points I'd like to make on this crystal ball conversation. I was having it earlier with an investor. One is, um, one of the indicators I look at really heavily is actually the commercial world. Um, so I've got a buddy that, you know, Western United States, they do all the geotechnical engineering and that type of stuff. And so we saw with them with the 2008, two or three years before you saw residential really dying, you saw the commercial die and they're early on. The commercial will still be happening, but they're two or three years before the building actually goes up with a geotechnical. So I always keep an eye on those guys because if they're slowing down, it means less money is getting pumped into the commercial, which means we'll eventually see a slowdown in the residential. And right now for the most part, they're still booming and um, just busy as can be. So I, I think that's a good sign as far as the real estate s- side of things. The other thing is there's, you know, maybe some leveling off and, you know, some of that type of stuff or, you know, the downturns coming. I, I don't necessarily buy into that. I think stabilization or normalization is coming. Um, is people uh, in the last few years are so used to putting your house on the market and having five offers tomorrow. And if you don't, there's a problem. That's not normal, right? right. It was normal right. for a few years, but that's in the, on the history of the world, that's not normal. And now, oh no, we have to wait 60 days to sell our house. That's not even normal. You know, 90, 120 days, that's probably normal. And so I think we're starting to see some normalization come into the marketplace, um, which is a good thing to see. Um, so that's, that's my feeling is I think we're seeing some normalization. I think we'll see some continued normalization to happen. I don't think we have anything big pending, something stupid, that, you know, tariffs screw up everything i don't know you know this whole ecosystem so delicate um you know so i i don't really know interest rates are lower than they've ever been and that's artificially um you know helping people buy bigger houses than they were able to afford before it's also growing Yep. And, it, and it's easy for investors to get loans on those types of properties. And, you know, if you're, if you're in the rental games, get, get long-term funding right now. Now's the time to do it because uh, interest rates are really, really low and you're not going to see that, I don't believe. So, I mean, there's pros and cons. I think it really comes down to knowing how to make money no matter what. Mm-hmm. where you're at. I mean, you, you brought up my short sale book, you know, they, I wrote a book on doing short sales on residential properties. You know, that strategy was a killer strategy after 2008. It's not that great of a strategy now, but if you know how to do it, if things change, you can know how to make money. So the question is, do you know how to make money no matter what the market is? Um, there's great opportunity. I will tell you if, if uh, things change and we see 2008 again, which I don't think we're going to get ready to buy, you know, start buying like right. this is the time to buy. So start thinking about how am I going to invest in things that if there is a downturn, I'm going to have liquid cash to go buy. Um, when there's blood on the streets, that's the time to buy. hundred percent. No. And, and just to respond to that, I think interesting that you're listening or looking at geotechnical. I studied, I did, was a geotechnical engineer for, for many, many years, not, not in the uh, ground up construction, but more on the, in the mining. Um, but what I've seen here locally, cause I used to work for a developer 
a lot of subs, and one thing we're not talking about is the cost of construction in the commercial space is out. Like it's ridiculous here in in Southern California, you know, in the Bay Area. Um, and then this is a little bit inflated with uh, internet cheap international capital coming in and buying up tier A, you know, tier one locations in downtown LA's, you know, San Francisco's, the New York's of the world. Um, but I am seeing a lot of subs going bankrupt because they can't, or, or, or general contractors, they're not getting jobs done on time. Then you know these class A multifamilies. I, I was involved with, very, with two of them in Long Beach and six to twelve months overrun. Um, general contractors just are struggling a little bit in the in the commercial space. So if for anyone listening out there, if you have any dirt that you're trying to entitle to get building, I would be very careful of where you know by the time it comes out of approvals. Um, you know, like I think there's a big rush right now. You look at like the local cities, you know, Austin, probably Salt Lake City. A lot of people are trying to get approvals really quickly, like dirt approved so they can get going um, because they're worried about how long this cycle is going to last and they don't want to be caught with the, with the pants. And we, what happens when the music stop and the musical chairs? So there's that point of, I love what you brought up about that, but I want to just add a little bit of color to that. Yeah. And I think the stabilization and the normalization is completely correct like we are just getting back to maybe some normal uh, normalcy normalcy is that, I don't know, is that yeah right? i like it i like it <laughs> we'll go with it um and but but i think also the biggest point you said is know how to make money in regardless of the market and and that is you know back up to your education resources lending you can tip and toe between the two as things ebb and flow so i think that is the beauty of real estate investing is that to create not just investing in the physical asset but create ecosystems around what you do education lending uh and buying real estate i really i really think that's incredible so um mate uh i like to end the show with uh diving into a lightning round called the top five investing tips ready to get into it okay let's do it mate what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals um, you know, the, the biggest thing, and this is a practicing daily, um, I'm working on what's called a painted picture, mm-hmm. um, which is just kind of like my vision of where I want things to be, you know, five years from now and keeping that in front of me and reviewing that, I think is probably the thing I I'll tell you that's a work in progress and it's a constant, you know, um, where that is, but that ritual or that, um, dogma, that belief system, I think is probably the biggest thing that helps me stay on track to where I want to go. It's easy to get, you know, in a, in a wrong direction and you have to keep saying, okay, what do I really want? That's really what it is to ask yourself is like, what do I really want? Not what, what do I want today? It's not like, no, what do I really want? Like, why am I doing this? What is it for? What am I trying to accomplish? Love it. Love it. Is that a, a physical visual board with, with, with images on there? Yeah, mine's are written, so okay. yeah. um, mine's you know typed up more than a board. I've done the vision board, you know, where you take pictures and that type of stuff. I'm I, I mean, I'm very visual, but you know, right now in my stage, it's not about having a nice car or a fancy boat or you know that type of stuff. Uh, mine's more like deep in my soul, things I'm trying to accomplish. I'm kind of past that. I'm getting older, um, you know. I'm kind of past that phase of like, oh, I want a nice car, like materialistic I, stuff. Yeah, like that's yeah. like I, I've got. I've got a car I love, you know, like that stuff I'm over. It's more like, how can I change somebody's life? That's awesome. That's really cool. I think that goes back to what you're saying about doing the bigger, um, the bigger picture, your North star. Mate, uh, question number two, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? I mean, I'd be amiss if I didn't say, you know, my dad, my grandpa, you know, we kind of like talked about them and saying, I probably wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I would say those two, um, 
Uh, beyond that, I've had a lot of mentors. It, it comes back to this whole concept of like, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Yep. And I can't tell you how many times, like I, I, I get this question a lot, um, you know, even like Larry Miller, who I met when I was in high school that owned the Utah Jazz and, you know, car dealerships. I think they're one of the largest privately held companies in the United States right now or the top, you know, 10 or something like that. I, I met him when I was in high school and he was a huge inspiration to me as well. But it seems like as, as, as things change or my new North Star changes, somebody else appears if I'm willing right. to, if I'm willing to listen. That's awesome. Mate, what is the number one tool, whether it be software or hardware related in your business that you use every day? Oh, number one tool, software or hardware. It could be either. It could be a person. I've had people say, oh, my analyst is the number one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. I would probably... I would be amiss if I didn't say, we, we have a software called the Investor's Edge software. It gives us access to everything you could ever want. Uh, I'd be amiss if I didn't say that. I use it literally all the time. I look up comps, look up prices, how much they owe. Um, literally, I couldn't function without it. <laughs> okay, cool. In one sentence or one word, what's been the biggest failure in your career and what you learn? The biggest what? Failure. In one word? Or oh, one sentence. We'll give you, we'll give you a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm long-winded. Um, the biggest failure is the, the <laughs> this is going to sound weird. I'm trying to get to one sentence. That's all right. Take as long as you want. The biggest failure is the shots I didn't take. Mm. Not the ones, not the ones I took and missed. Mm. Mm. It's that regret, right? Like, I wish I'd taken that. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look back in 2008 after the crash, you know, we bought some properties, but I was so scared to buy more. I should have bought a million of them. Um, but I was so worried it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, you know, and now properties that I bought back then for a hundred grand are selling for three fifty. And, um, you know, so maybe some of the shots I didn't take that said, I'm, it's not like I'm losing sleep at night. <laughs> I've had a great career, you know, I am still doing some great things, but, uh, I would say, I wish I would have taken more shots. I'm kind of a, I'm scared. I, you know, fear kind of drives me a little more, mm-hmm. you know, fear of losses. It drives me more than the, the potential of gain. And I think that's true for most people. Uh, uh, as you get older, right? shots. Yeah. Yeah. E- even when I was young, same thing, you know, yeah. it's like, what's the risk? Um, you know, maybe take a few more shots and take a little more risk. Ryan, you've been an incredible guest on today's show. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. They want to reach out and say, g'day, where do they go? Yeah. Um, just go over to dohardmoney.com. Um, we put a special link for your listeners together so they can download our book, How to Get More Money You Can Ever Handle, Real Estate Investor's Guide to Funding Deals. Uh, dohardmoney.com backslash investing dash in dash the dash us, you know, for your, for your podcast listeners. So you've got, it's a special link just for those who listen. Um, so you can download that, uh, grab that book. It, uh, it's absolutely free. We sell it for 25 bucks or uh, something on Barnes and Noble borders, Amazon, that stuff. But uh, your listeners can get a digital copy of that for free if they want to, if they want to grab that. And, uh, and you can find out more about us at dohardmoney.com. Awesome. Well, mate, thank you so much for dropping. And I just want to quickly summarize some of the big takeaways from today. I think, you know, readjusting your North Star was probably an underlying theme that as you've grown in from broker, uh, sorry, from carpet salesman to, to broker, to university student, to husband, to investor, to now uh, really a tech guy, we're bringing all your sort of ecosystems in together. 
and and really what you've learned and now as you just sort of alluded to that your, your, your North Stars giant evolving all the time which is really really important but I think also the other big one is you've got to learn how to make money in no matter what the market is and um, you've been able to, to, to prove that over over a long period of time so so well done did I leave anything out no I think those are great well mate thank you so much for uh, jumping on the show enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon thanks for having me well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice. Please do jump over to Ryan's website, dohardmoney.com. Get a copy of his book or just reach out and say g'day. Um, I want to thank you all again for cha- uh, taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack. Mm-hmm.